Thank you, Matt. Good morning, church. It's great to be together this morning uh, around God's Word. And the, uh, the weather's changing a bit, but um, as we're going to see this morning, God's kingdom uh, does not. And so let me just get myself sorted. Here. Technology. Oh, dear. Let's come to uh, the giver of these words uh, before we dive in to see what he has to say to us today. Would you please join me in prayer? Lord Jesus, we are so thankful that we are able to be here this morning together, to gather around your words that you have spoken, not just historically, but are speaking to us today through your Holy Spirit. Please give us understanding. May we not be like the crowds who walked away saying you are a great man but did nothing about it, but be like your disciples who have ears to hear, to receive your spirit, to be transformed. We ask for this grace and mercy in your name. Amen. So for the past few weeks, we've been at the feet of Jesus on this mountain, exploring his teaching to the crowds and more specifically to his disciples, which as we've noticed had the flavour of what Moses said would happen in that one greater than he would come on the scene, having the very words of God to give to his people. In the opening verses of Christ's teaching, we saw that he started off with what it is to be blessed in chapter 5, verses 1 through to 12. What it is to be blessed in God's sight and to be part of his kingdom with the Beatitudes, which showed us that it's only those who rely on the mercy and grace of God who will be blessed in his sight. It was there that we noticed that Jesus spoke in a general sense to the crowds, but then we saw towards the end of those verses, in uh, verses 11 and 12, uh, that he turned his attention specifically to the disciples, uh, using the words, you, and warning them and saying that if you are going to live for God and his kingdom, then you can be sure that there will be slander, persecution, and insults coming your way. And that was important to note because it was to them, to the disciples of Jesus, to the people of the kingdom of heaven, that Jesus then went on to liken them to the salt and the light of this world. Salt which had preservative qualities and light which darkness can't overcome and is driven back whenever present. All this to say, Jesus in no uncertain terms was saying to his disciples directly, you are not to withdraw from this world, but you are to engage with it, all the while not compromising with the world as to lose our witness. Then last week, we saw that Jesus made the incredible and awesome claim that he is, in fact, the one who fulfills the law. 
Jesus, as we saw, his way of saying that by his very life, his very doctrine, he gives the fullest expression of what the law and the prophets are all about. So with that established for his disciples, you can imagine it, the question would have become, what was going to be their view of the moral law, which is most clearly seen in the Ten Commandments? And how would they apply it to their lives? And we need to think about this here this morning too, as we have to remember that Jesus made it clear in verses 17 through to 20 that the law is still authoritative for his people. That's what we saw last week. The believers of Jesus, his disciples, will follow the moral law of God because God's moral law nature has never changed. However, Jesus was very clear that he is the ultimate expression of the law. And we see throughout the whole council of scripture that all who come to him, who are united to him by the Holy Spirit, will obey and love the law of God from the heart because it is written on our hearts, says Jeremiah and Ezekiel. So with all that said, Jesus now turns his attention to contrasting six of the traditional interpretations of the law that the people had been taught by the religious leaders of the time with his own, but I tell you, antidotes. That's what we'll be looking at uh, over the next few weeks. Everything from verse 21 to the end of the chapter is an illustration, an explanation, an application of how we as the disciples of Jesus Christ are really meant to understand and apply the law of God in our own lives as we engage with this world. So if you have your Bibles with you uh, this morning, we'll be in our text quite a bit. So uh, would you look with me at verse 21? Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Now, obviously, Jesus hasn't pulled this saying out of nowhere because, as he says here, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago which we should take as the people of Israel. And what he quotes is actually the sixth of the Ten Commandments, the sixth commandment given by God to the people of Israel at Mount Sinai, recorded in the book of Exodus and repeated in Deuteronomy 5. Jesus is doing something very interesting here. You see, by Jesus quoting Torah or the law, it shows that he in no way disagrees with what God has revealed to Israel before. We saw that so clearly last week when Jesus said he had not come to abolish the law but to give it its fullest meaning. And we have to remember that as he works through these next few sayings because on the surface it might seem that he quotes a command and then contradicts what's been said before with the phrase, but I say unto you. But that simply isn't the case. No, what Jesus is contradicting is not the law itself, but certain distortions of the application of the law of which the religious leaders taught at the time and that the people had heard and adopted. In fact, as we'll see here in our text, far from contradicting the law, Jesus endorses 
reinforces and insists on its authority, going on to give its true interpretation. For example, it's not like Jesus says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I say unto you, go for it. No, rather, he takes things to a totally different level in how the law really should be understood and applied. So that's what we have to remember here this morning, church. By Jesus pointing his audience to the law, he's demonstrating that he in no uncertain terms is continuing, uh, that, is, it, that it is the continuing moral standard of God and in no way disconnected or discontinued in the kingdom of heaven. Yet, he is defining where the application has gone wrong and where it must land. It's here that it might be a good time to have a think about why. Why why did Jesus need to give the clearest application and explanation of the law that the world had ever heard in the face of the teaching of the time? Well, to put it simply, the religious teachers of Israel just didn't have a high view of the law. You may have read through the book of Matthew and thought to yourself, but Michael, the Pharisees did everything in such an extreme way, more so than we do. I mean, as you read through the book of Matthew, you'll see that they didn't eat with sinners. They fasted more than anyone else in the region. They washed their hands in a ceremonial way every time they ate. But the list goes on and on and on. Weren't they uber law keepers? But you'll also notice as you read through the book of Matthew that much of what they did, much of their understanding of the law concentrated on the external factors. That seemed to be the driving theological view of the Pharisees, the external. And to put it simply, Jesus is going to point out here that that was a major problem that they saw the commandments as external requirements only, which demonstrated that they didn't emphasize or realize the internal requirements of the commandments. So they gave the people, the Pharisees gave the people, they taught the people that they could keep the commandments of God even if their hearts weren't right with him. That's what's going on here. The Pharisees were fixated on the external and taught the people of Israel that as long as they obeyed the externals of the commandments, they were right with God. In other words, the Pharisees were scaling down the demands of the law, making their view, as we've said before and noticed, their view of the law very small. I want to give you an example of this. Take the text that we have before us this morning. Jesus says to his disciples, you've heard that you shouldn't murder because you'll end up being the subject of judgment. Just before we go on to see what Jesus has to say about this, we want to ask the question, what is this judgment that Jesus speaks of? (coughs) Professor Albert Barnes is helpful here, uh, noting that the judgment here in context was the tribunal that would judge cases of criminal activity. It was a court that sat in each city or town and consisted commonly of seven members, 
It was the lowest court among the Jews, and from it an appeal might be taken to the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. So with that understanding, in this context, we are to take judgment here as when someone was suspect of committing murder. They would be brought before the local Jewish courts, and with that, they would stand trial to determine if the act was intended, an accident, or lawful, as said in Deuteronomy 19.4. This was incredibly serious stuff, as the consequences for premeditated murder was capital punishment. The the law puts it like this in Exodus 21.14. If anyone schemes and kills someone deliberately, that person is to be taken from the altar, and that person is to be put to death. Church, that's what I want you to notice this morning. I want you to notice where the pharisaical application has landed. It's a civil case. That's what Jesus is pointing out here. The pharisaical application of the law that you have heard is you break the law and you've got a civil problem on your hands. That's what judgment is here. The civil courts. In other words, the Pharisees taught the people that the law of God was upheld as long as justice in the courts and punishment of those who had committed murder was served. So that's what Jesus is doing here. He he takes the sixth commandment and says, you've heard that teaching on the law when it comes to murder. They say don't do it because you know the consequences. You'll end up in court They have the power to take your life. In church, this is where Jesus takes things to a totally different level than just the consequence of a mere human judgment. I want you to read with me verse 22. These are the words of Jesus, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. goes without saying, we really must pay attention to what's happening here. Because Jesus is essentially saying that you can break the sixth commandment, my disciples, in do not murder in more ways than just taking the life of someone else. It's clear that's what's being said here. And we want to remember the context. The the primary concern for Jesus here was to teach his disciples the truth, the application of the law, the truth to those who are the meek, who are the humble. So I want us to really pay attention, to really catch what Jesus is saying here not to just understand it, but to apply it. So notice it. Notice what Jesus is doing here. He takes that which appears external and plunges it into the internal. You see it right here in our text this morning. Right here in verse 22. He says to the disciples, but I tell you, anyone who was angry, anyone who says to a brother, sister, Raka, anyone who says you fool is as guilty as a murderer. Jesus is showing us something here. 
He's teaching us that the law is first and foremost spiritual. As he takes the application of the law from the external into the internal, from the outward action and its consequences to the seat of the human heart and its intentions. It's by Jesus doing this that we as the disciples of Jesus see that that's what the law is. It was given not to just deal with the external, but also to expose lawlessness in the internal, in the heart, in the mind. And and that's what the Pharisees had completely missed, right? They'd missed that the law is spiritual in nature. In fact, verse 21 of our text this morning, it's a clear explanation of what's come before in verse 20. Where Jesus says, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Again, because the Pharisees' view of the righteousness, of righteousness and its application was based on external keeping of the law. And that's the nature of the problem that Jesus had here what he was pushing, no kicking back against. The Pharisees' misuse of the law and their teaching to others. And they did this because we have to conclude that they had no idea of the character of their God who sees and knows everything. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, as King David puts it in Psalm 19. You might be here this morning and thinking to yourself, Michael, what's so bad about seeing the law as external? About, About seeing it exclusively external? Well, because the source of the problem wasn't being exposed. Just the external behavior was being dealt with And then no real cure could be prescribed. Now, as many of you know, over the past couple of weeks, uh, Haley has had some pretty tremendous pain with her back and neck. And as great as the doctors have been in trying to deal with the pain, as shown by her external symptoms... It really hasn't been until she had an MRI that anyone could really, really see what was happening, what was really going on on the inside. But once that was done, once we could see what was happening from the x-rays, a real picture of the internal damage can be clearly seen. That was the Pharisees' problem. They ignored the internal and thought that by dealing with the externality of the issue, that they had kept the law, that they were model citizens of God's heavenly kingdom and in great relationship with him. They taught the people, you can come and do the same as us. But as we saw last week, the law cannot justify us because we simply can't keep it once it's applied to what's going on on the inside of us. And knowing that, says Jesus, knowing that is the first step to realising that we are the poor in spirit. That's where Jesus takes it. The law 
acts like an MRI, which reveals what's really going on on the inside as it deals with the spiritual things, deals with the heart. It's not just external, it's not just political, it's not just civil, not just social like the Pharisees were teaching. No, it exposes what's going on in the hearts and minds of people. Now, brothers and sisters, by the Lord Jesus giving us this application, he's actually giving us a diagnostic tool by which we can check our own hearts, right? Now, on the one hand, we all know that our hearts are deceitfully wicked, and who can know them, says Jeremiah. But on the other hand, because of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, because of the illumination of his conviction, there has been a sense of our utter poorness of spirit before the living God. So much so that there's been a time where we have handed our lives over to God and called upon the name of the Lord to be saved. And because of that work, we are gradually being separated from our old man and conformed more and more into the image of the new man, of Jesus. And that's because Jesus is the perfect law keeper, the exact representation of God, says the author to the Hebrews. The law still acts somewhat as a, as a tool for us by which we can continually do self-examination and confession of our failings in its light. With that said, Jesus actually gives us two examples of how to do this, how to do a bit of diagnostic work on the heart in our passage this morning. Obviously, the first one is with our hearts. That's what Jesus is doing here in verse 22. He shows how the sixth commandment, the commandment, not to murder, relates to our anger where no one can see it. I want to say that there is a righteous anger and there is an unrighteous anger. And unfortunately, we don't have all the time in the world to go into this this morning, but I found Martin Luther, his comments on this in the midst of uh, doing real reform in, in Europe his definition of righteous anger, extremely helpful. He calls it an anger of love, as it's anger that wishes no one any evil, one that is friendly to the person, but hostile to the sin. But that's not what Jesus is referring to here. He's referring to unrighteous anger that hates the person, And he judges that anger as murder in the heart. Second, Jesus moves on and he speaks of another kind of law-breaking, applying the sixth commandment to our tongues, saying if you have used destructive speech towards others, you are guilty of murder by the tongue. It's here that by Jesus moving from the heart to the tongue that we really do understand there is so much more than physical murder that's involved with this commandment. Now, in regards to murder by the tongue, I I do want to say a couple of things uh, about this and point you particularly to that word that Jesus uses in verse 22, raka. It means you empty head. Now, that's... 
not just a mean name that you catch our children calling each other on the playground, but it comes from an incredibly prideful place. It's a word that scorns a person, accusing them of being spiritually ignorant. It's what you would say to someone who has a lack of knowledge of the truth when it comes to God. The second word is you fool. And that word, that word comes from an incredibly spiteful place. Raka from pride, fool from spite. It's a word which comes from uh, hatred. It, it's a word which you would use when you accuse a person of having no grace in his life. In other words, to call someone raka or, or a fool in the way that it's being used here in chapter 5, you're pretty much accusing a person of being a complete heathen. Now, we don't know this for certain, I, I will admit that, but you can pretty much read between the lines here. You can imagine it. Jesus taking real-life scenarios and words that were being said by the Pharisees of John the Baptist, of himself and his followers. We can make an educated guess here because we know that all throughout the gospel, according to Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, that the Pharisees accused Jesus and the disciples of being ignorant of the truth, having no real knowledge of God in the way that they went about breaking the Pharisaical traditions. So if we think about it in that way, Jesus was saying that when you speak destructively, when you speak with hatred towards others, you're committing murder by the tongue. And to put it simply, this commandment is broken not only when someone unlawfully takes the life of another, it's broken with the tongue and the heart. And those sins, said Jesus, those sins must be taken with the utmost of seriousness. We really need to hear these words this morning, church. Jesus says, if you harbour this kind of hatred in your heart and spew out this kind of hatred out of your mouth, you're guilty enough not just to go to court, but hell. And I, I, I do want to say this. Jesus isn't saying that these different places where sin takes place, as in the heart and the tongue, deserves different places of judgment. No, Jesus is simply stressing the seriousness of all sin that comes from pride and hatred towards your neighbour. He is saying in a profoundly paradoxical way against the popular understanding of the day that though no one may ever know that you've committed these sins, this pride and hatred is incredibly serious in the sight of God and he sees and judges the heart. Brother, sister, maybe you have experienced in the midst of great pressure, heart sins of this sort, not just against people out there in the world, but even against those you love. Maybe you've experienced in the midst of great pressures, 
uh, in a family context with your spouse or even with your children, murder of the tongue like this. Jesus is saying, my, my disciples, that is a symptom of something that needs to be changed in the heart. So you see this again, we need to understand this. Jesus uses the law as a diagnostic tool to give us self-examination. We might think, I'm not breaking the law. Everything's fine. I haven't broken the law not to murder. But then in the midst of pressure, that cutting word comes out against your spouse, which is designed to destroy, designed to tear down. Maybe you can think of the times driving to work and that person cuts in front of you and mouths something off and you you think to yourself, if only I catch up with that guy, I, I would love to do such and so forth to them. Maybe it's as fickle as someone's comment on a social media post that riles you up on the toilet in the morning and you go about the rest of the day thinking how stupid they are and telling everyone else about it. Brothers and sisters, according to the Lord Jesus Christ, the one we call our master, that's murder by tongue. Murder in the heart. And Jesus is saying to us in no uncertain terms, that is a sign of spiritual sickness. So the question naturally should come from us. What is Jesus telling us to do here? Are we to go and just obey the law and all will be fine? Well, no, because if we're honest, we know our thoughts. We hear the words that we use and are sometimes surprised by the utter hatred that comes vomiting out of our mouth towards others. Jesus' point is to drive you not to work harder at being more tight-lipped, His point is to drive you into his arms again and again and again in prayer and dependence on him. It's to drive you to want the Holy Spirit to work that wondrous work of grace in our lives to kill the sin in your life and in my life. Church, anyone that's ever struggled with this kind of sin you know you can't free yourself from it. Prideful anger, hatred and deep resentment need spiritual surgery, the grace of God to work at the very core of our very being to free us from it. That's what we need. We need the grace of God in our sanctification. So church, instead of running away from the law, being terrified of the law. Let's examine ourselves in light of the law because it's delightful in that it drives us to depend on Jesus. Let us depend on him and the work of the Spirit in our lives more and more because it is he that is conforming us again to the pattern of God's perfect law. I want to say this again, only the grace of God can conquer this kind of sin. 
And the law was given not so we would look to our own abilities, but to the life of the perfect lawkeeper. I remember the first time this really hit home with me. I remember years ago looking at the law with those terrifying thou shall nots and seeing how guilty I was before them. That utter sense of condemnation, especially when applied to my thoughts. But then I remember years later after I'd become a Christian looking at those very same thou shall nots and thinking to myself, you know, because of Jesus, because of his perfect law-keeping on my behalf, those thou shall nots, well, they're more like promises that are held out to the children of God. Promises that I, as I'm separated more and more from my old nature, as I'm separated from that old life and conformed more and more into the image of Jesus Christ, well, there will, actually become, there will actually come a day where I shall not have any gods before him. That there will come a day where I, I shall not covet other people's lives or things. That there will come a day where I will not murder people in the heart or with my tongue. And yet in the meantime, where I do fall short, and let me say this, I really do fall short. I can look to Jesus. I can look to that perfect man who gave his life and cry out to him, help me. Help me to be more like you, not because I deserve it, not because I've earned it, because in your pleasure, in your delight, you have saved a wretch like me. And church, it is the delight of the Holy Spirit to do his work in us. Are we worthy in and of ourselves of this grace? Absolutely not. But that is the thing about grace. It is completely undeserved favour. And because of Jesus, we are welcomed as children to come to the throne of grace. In the midst of our guilt, we can cry out, Lord, I've sinned. Please forgive me. Lord, please work in me. Take this pride. Take this hatred away. And brothers and sisters, it is our Father's delight and pleasure to answer prayers like that. Now, as we finish our time in this text this morning, Jesus then goes on to apply the law in a, a different way in regards to our relationships with each other. That's what he's doing in verses 23 through to 26. He takes the law from an examining our inner person and applies it to the relationships with each other. He does this by giving a couple of applications to really drive this point home. First, about a person in the midst of conflict who is on their way to the temple to worship God as you would do under the old covenant. But then he remembers that there is division with another, a, a, a brother. And so Jesus says they need to go and be reconciled. Second, he uses the example of people in the midst of conflict. And he says, which, if it's not settled, it can spiral more and more out of control till one of them ends up in prison. Now, we won't go as deep into this, but I do want to say this. 
we have to see what's being driven home in the light of everything that we've looked at so far this morning. And it goes back to using the law as a diagnostic tool to examine ourselves as believers. Jesus is saying that the law reveals bad stuff going on, not just on the surface, but in the heart. And it gets us to ask questions of ourselves, like what's my attitude towards other people? If our attitude of heart is hateful towards others, then that's an indication that something is terribly wrong. If we speak badly of others, wanting to destroy them, wanting to tear them down with what we say, then it shows us something of the state of our heart. And so when we come to these examples, the question then becomes, what is our attitude towards others in the midst of conflict? Are we concerned that we have offended others? Are we proactive in reconciliation rather than externally worshipping God, saying everything is fine but holding real resentment towards others? Are we concerned that when we have offended others that we need to do something about it rather than waiting for them to come to us? In other words, are we wanting to show the tremendous character of God and the love that we have received towards others? Or do we simply just not care enough to do anything about it? Well, I would put forward to you this morning, church, that's what Jesus is doing here with these examples. He's saying to us, his disciples, that if you have, if you have the love of God in your heart, If the gospel has really captured you, then you are going to have a heart that wants to be right with your brothers and sisters. In other words, if you have experienced reconciliation and the love of God, then the overflow of that relationship is a want of reconciliation with those around us. A want... It's not always possible, but a desire to not have division, to have a lack and to not harbour hatred and to tear down. So there's a warning in this. If we don't care, Jesus says that tells us that's evidence of absence of gospel love in our heart. And so to believers, this law is given to drive us back to Christ so we might put to death sin in us. To the self-righteous, it reminds us that this law cannot justify us before God who searches the hearts and minds of people. So as we close, this needs to be said loud and clear this morning. It is only God who can work these things in us. And he only does it by his grace and through the work of his spirit. So when we see these things in ourselves, and we will see these things in ourselves, God's invitation is come freely. Come to Christ. Turn back again. Experience afresh the blessings of the indwelling 
of the work of the Holy Spirit. That is our invitation as disciples of Jesus, to continually go to the throne room of grace. The law shows us what God will make us one day. We ought to desire now to become what one day shall be. Would you please join me in praying for these things? Lord Jesus, we thank you that as your church, we're not gathered in this room this morning speaking to each other or to the ceiling, but we are speaking to you as your precious, beloved bride, blood-purchased children, your disciples. These are challenging words, Jesus, for all of us. We ask, and we have asked for many months, that you would transform us, that you would change us. And as your word is a double-edged sword, exposing things in us this morning, I pray, Father, that um, I pray for your people that we won't run from but run to you. I pray that there would be an overwhelming sense of your love, your forgiveness, and your work in the hearts and minds of your people. We thank you for these words, Jesus. We thank you that they are words that again remind us that we are to look to you and no other, that there is one way and you have made that way possible because of your love for us. Might we be encouraged this morning? Might we be built up? Might we be transformed by your work in us? We ask for these things in Jesus' name.